Hey, remember today we're starting a new study in the book of Mark. And have you guys ever gone to, to a bookstore and bought a book? Everybody's done that, right? Okay, what's, what's one of the first things that you do before you, you actually buy the book? You, you look at it, right. You, you look at the back, right, and, and you want to get all kinds of information on there. You want to see maybe what other people have, have said about it. Uh, maybe get just a brief synopsis of the book. And if you don't know anything about the author, it's good to know something about the author too, right? Especially if it's something that's presenting something as, as being true, like a, a history book. You know, what are this guy's credentials? How does this guy know anything about history at all? So today we're going to be starting the book of Mark, a study in the book of Mark. And we're going to be asking some of those questions that you might ask before you start a study on, uh, on a book, such as, you know, why are, why are we reading this? Um, who was it written to? Why was it written? When was it written? Things like that. Those are all things that I want to answer before we actually get started uh, with, with this study. But, um, you know, I, I thought we'd, we'd start out by asking the question, why are we even studying the book of Mark? I mean, there are 66 books in the Bible. Why did I pick the book of Mark? Well, I, I wanted to do a gospel, to be honest. I, I thought um, it would be a good time to, to start a new study that focuses really on, on Jesus. But, you know, there are four gospels. So why did I pick the book of Mark? Or why, why are we doing the book of Mark? Well, when I was in seminary, one, one, of, the, one of the best pieces of advice uh, I think I got was one of my professors said, what you really want to do is, is take one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, take one of those and make it your own. So guess which one I picked? Mark. No, I picked Luke. <laughs> I picked Luke. Um, and, and we'll talk in a minute about why we're not doing the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke was really cool. I, I really love the Gospel of Luke because Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Instead, Luke, who was a, he was a follower of Jesus, but what he did is he went straight to the source. He's the kind of guy that asks a lot of really hard questions because if something can't stand under scrutiny, it's not worth believing in. And that's why I love the Gospel of Luke so much. I'll get to Mark in just a second, but, but the Gospel of Luke is, is a great book because he's really an apologist. He really wants the truth, and so he goes right to the sources. He goes and he interviews eyewitnesses, and he corroborates the testimony of the eyewitnesses with the Gospel of Matthew, and so they, they kind of blend together. But, you know, the Gospel of Luke, uh, you know, it tells us, for example, more about Mary than any other book because Luke went and interviewed Mary. It tells us about John the Baptist's background because he probably went and talked to John the Baptist's parents. So with that said, yeah, Luke is my favorite of the four Gospels, but Mark is still a great book. I, I, um, I want to make sure that we, we focus on the reasons that we're actually studying Mark instead of Luke. The first reason is, uh, is um, maybe not a great reason, but uh, there are a lot of churches right now that are doing the book of Luke to be honest. Uh, one of those churches is Mars Hill, which is one of the, the biggest church up here in the Seattle area. Uh, one of the biggest churches in the country. They're on something like their 83rd lesson in Luke today. Uh, so they, they've got this long going uh, study of Luke that they're in the middle of. And I, I didn't want to duplicate what they were doing. Also, the Village Church, that's another great church uh, down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, they did a study, I don't know, a couple years ago um, on the book of Luke. And again, it was really extensive. It, it was really a, a deep, deep study. So I, I didn't want to duplicate what anybody else was doing. Uh, the second reason um, is that, as we're going to see, Mark probably did witness Jesus' ministry, at least part of it. He probably did. And like I said, when you want the truth, you go to the source. So Mark is one of those sources. He was there probably and witnessed some of Jesus' ministry, and he, uh, he knew Peter. Peter was uh, kind of his mentor. So Peter would have passed this stuff along to him. So Mark uh, was not only an eyewitness, but he was very, very acquainted with the apostles, as we're going to see here in just a minute. Uh, number three, the book of Mark just honestly hasn't been taught as frequently as either uh, any of the other three Gospels. There are huge studies that you can find online on Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, current, old, but, but Mark kind of gets overlooked. And I'm not exactly sure um, why that is, why there are fewer exegetical studies being done on the book of Mark. Um, maybe it's because it's the shortest of the four gospel narratives. Maybe it's because there's half a chapter in there that probably 
shouldn't even be in there. And we're, trust me, we're going to talk about that when we get to it. Uh, but yeah, there's about half a chapter in there that maybe shouldn't be in there. Some scholars say it shouldn't be in there. But as, as theologically rich as the book of Mark is, it's, it's really a shame that there just aren't more in-depth studies on the book of Mark out there. So uh, with that said, I thought, wow, you know, Mark would be a, a great book to study. So let's, let's move on to the next question that you might want to ask. Who was Mark? Who was this guy that, that wrote this book? Uh, and, and that's a really good question because, honestly, um, we know a whole lot more about Matthew and Luke and John. We know a whole lot more about Paul than we do about Mark. And so if we want to know anything about who Mark was, it's actually going to take a little bit of detective work on our part. Uh, first of all, he was the cousin of one of Paul's closest companions for many years. And of course, I'm talking about Barnabas. Uh, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Paul's tacking this on at the end. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. We don't know what those instructions are, by the way. And he goes on to say, if he comes to you, welcome him. So he, he was close with one of the, the biggest partners in the, apost- uh, the apostles' ministry, Barnabas. He, he was really close with him. The second, uh, second thing we know about Mark is that he was the son of a very wealthy, maybe influential woman. And so he was probably very wealthy himself, at least at one point in his life. Uh, his mother's name was Mary, and of course that's not to be confused with Mary Magdalene or Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, um, so how do we know that, that she was wealthy and perhaps influential? Well, because she had a really, really big, fancy house right smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, when Peter was imprisoned for preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, uh, Luke tells us that in the middle of the night, this angel comes and frees Peter from prison right there in the middle of the night. And so we read in Acts chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, When Peter came to himself, in other words, when he realized exactly what was going on, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where there were many gathered together and were praying. So this house that Mary lived in, Mark's mother, this house that she lived in was big enough that uh, it housed many of the people who were gathered together. Not only that, but there was a gate out front. Not only that, but the the book of Acts tells us that the house had servants, at at least one servant named Rhoda. So so we know that Mark has a wealthy, influential background. Uh, Number three, he had personally known the Apostle Paul, uh, once called Saul. And he had accompanied uh, Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was a companion of Paul for a season. We read in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So at some point along the way, Mark had been going with them on, on this missionary journey, and he had deserted them. He deserted them and headed home, which actually infuriated Paul. We, we see Paul get, get mad in the, in the Bible a couple times. He gets really mad at Peter the one time in Galatians that he tells us about. But Paul gets furious with uh, John, also called Mark. Uh, there are very few things which caused relational tension between Paul and other people, but this caused an enormous amount of relational tension. In fact, Paul wanted nothing to do with Mark or, or John Mark uh, after that. Barnabas, however, he was this guy who just, he loved people and he believed in people. If you remember uh, in in the book of Acts, when Paul, Saul, has his conversion to to Christianity, uh, who's the one who vouches for him? It's Barnabas. And so it's not too much of a surprise that uh, that Barnabas is is ready to vouch again. He's ready to give a second chance to his cousin, uh, Mark. But listen to what we read in Acts chapter 15, verses 35 to 39. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, preaching and teaching with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had, gone with, and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Every time I read that, there's one thing that, that really strikes me, and that is the fact that there's all this anger, there's all this tension, there's not a single mention of prayer. Not a single mention. Anyway, of course, Paul eventually comes to a point where he, he recognizes that his attitude toward Mark was sinful. He recognizes his sinful attitude, and he forgives Mark, which is why he vouches for him in the book of Colossians, as we saw. He said, welcome him in. Uh, in his final epistle, Paul specifically mentions Mark again by name and asks to be reunited with him. Listen to what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service or for ministry. The Greek word that gets translated as service also gets translated as ministry. I think ministry might be a little bit better uh, translation in this case because he was a partner in ministry with Paul. So, of course, he also, uh, he also knew Paul. He'd gone with him on some missionary journeys. Uh, fourth, he was also, as we mentioned previously, a disciple of Peter. Uh, it's probable that when Peter was released from prison in the middle of the night and he came to Mary's house, to, to Mark's mother's house, it's very likely that Mark was right there as Peter walked through the door. And can you imagine what a huge impact that would have had on him? He, he knew how tough the Roman authorities were. He knew how tough it would have been for Peter to, to break away. But there he was. And, and Mark was probably there. Um, how he got involved directly with Peter's ministry, we can't be sure, but I, I'm, I would guess that Barnabas probably had something to do with it. The last we hear about Mark, really, he's, you know, he's sailing off with Barnabas. So at some point, Barnabas probably makes this deal with Peter. Hey, you know, my, my cousin is a good guy. I'll vouch for him. Please take him along with you. And that's, uh, that's what happens. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, we read, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. So he, he's close enough. Mark is close enough to Peter that Peter calls him his son, kind of like how uh, Paul refers to Timothy as, as his son. Now, not son in a biological sense, but in a spiritual sense. So that's how close Peter and, uh, and, and Mark were. Uh, fifth, he was also probably um, a person who was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, although it's hard to say exactly how involved he was, how much he saw, because he never mentions himself by name in the text. Uh, was he one of the 70 who gets sent out by Jesus? Maybe. What, was he the man holding the pitcher on the side of the road in, uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 13? Maybe. I mean, we can only speculate on these things, and the opinions on these possibilities vary a lot between uh, scholars and commentators, you know, from one to the next. But there's one detail that almost every scholar and every uh, commentator agrees is almost definitely Mark. Uh, the scene is the arrest of Jesus by the Roman guards in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter has just cut off one of the, one of the ears of one of the guards, and Jesus has acknowledged that all of this happened in order to fulfill prophecy. And so suddenly, in, in the middle of, of this whole scene, Mark inserts something that we don't find in Matthew or Luke. He writes in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, A young man was following him, following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So here's Jesus getting arrested. We don't know exactly what happened, but somehow... This seems to be Mark because it's such an odd detail. It's something that, that would have stood out in Mark's mind. You know, maybe in the middle of the night, Mary said, Mark, wake up, wake up. Jesus is being arrested and, and Mark is sleeping in, in just linens. And so he goes out and he decides, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the one to follow Jesus. I'll, I will follow Jesus. And so when they're making arrests, they grab Mark by the linen. And before you know it, all they've got is the linen. So he's just left there standing naked. But this detail isn't found in any of the other gospel narratives, so almost every commentator and scholar agrees. That's Mark right there. It's also possible that he was the rich young ruler 
in, uh, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but in the middle of this dialogue that Jesus is having with the rich young ruler, Mark, and not Matthew or Luke or John, Mark includes, and he looked on him with love, and Jesus looked on him with love. So maybe that was Mark, and the, the look that Jesus gave him made a deep impression on him. But he was very likely an eyewitness to at least part of Jesus' earthly ministry. So with all this said, uh, we actually know a lot about Mark. It just takes a little bit of digging around and uh, finding a puzzle piece here, finding a puzzle piece there, and putting them together to, to actually get a comprehensive picture. And what we get is a picture of a man who loved Jesus deeply and who was completely sold out for the gospel, somebody who devoted his life to supporting and ministering alongside the apostles for the sake of spreading the gospel. The next question we might ask is, when was this written? Uh, and, and there's actually, this is, there's so many opinions on this. Uh, there's no exact date given for exactly when this was written. And there are tons of theories out there about when it was written. And it, it's kind of funny because, you know, as you're reading commentators and you're reading, uh, you know, listening to sermons, Everybody is saying, oh, this is when this happened. You know, some will say, Mark was definitely the first book written because it's the shortest. Uh, the next guy will say, Mark was definitely the last one written because it's the shortest. <laughs> Let's just be honest. There were, there were four books written within about 60 years, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's very hard to look back and say exactly uh, which one came first, which one came second, uh, and so on and so forth. I think in order to determine when this was written, we actually have to ask, ask the question first, whom was this written to or for? So uh, this is a book that was written for a Gentile audience. Uh, Romans, uh, the Roman Gentiles, looked up to kings and earthly rulers who were merciless and who demanded the service of others. And Mark presents Jesus as the king of kings, the ruler who had authority over all the universe and who was infinitely merciful and who came to serve others. First, he's going to present him as the servant or the, the ruler who serves. Then he's going to present him as the ruler who serves. Now, we can be sure that it was a Gentile audience because if it had been written for a Jewish audience, there probably would have been a genealogy. Um, the Jewish people of that time, the Jewish culture of that time, they were really big into genealogies. Uh, also, the Gentiles liked power. They liked action, kind of like us. You know, who, who wants to watch a movie where there aren't explosions and guns, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, that's, that's something that catches people's attention, and movie makers know that. If you've seen the movie 2012, it's all action and special effects and, and, and no substance. Somehow they actually made their money back on that movie. It was horrible. Um, but yeah, they, they were a lot like, the, the, the Romans were a lot like we are today. They liked a lot of action. And so Mark's book, uh, you know, it's characterized by a lot of action, moving very quickly from one scene to the next. And so we can be sure that it was a Gentile audience. Um, and, and that's something, again, that scholars almost unanimously agree on. So back to when this was written, we need to remember that it took a lot of years. It took a lot of time for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. In fact, through the first uh, 11 or so uh, chapters of the book of Acts, we see the apostles being uh, rebellious. They're, they're being disobedient. They're not doing what they were told to do. They were told to take the gospel to the nations, but all they're doing is staying in Jerusalem and letting, you know, if, if they come to us, we'll, we'll teach it to them. Uh, but it really wasn't going to the Gentiles. So the earliest Christians were almost entirely Jewish converts. And so thus it makes sense to conclude that the earliest gospel written would have been geared toward a Jewish audience. It would have been written for the Jewish apologists, and that's actually what the book of Matthew is all about. If you read the book of Matthew, he goes through prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and he includes these details that would have been important to the Jewish mindset. So with that said, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that the book of Matthew was the first gospel written. Now, we know that the book of Luke, uh, there's, there's no question at all that the, the book of Luke was written for a specific Gentile. It was written for a man uh, named Theophilus, uh, probably a public figure. Uh, Luke addresses both his gospel narrative and the book of, uh, of Acts to Theophilus. Now, remember that Luke had been among those who had gone on missionary journeys with Paul, and as Paul brought the gospel message to the Gentiles, he undoubtedly became acutely aware of the fact that the book of Matthew uh, didn't really appeal, didn't make a whole lot of sense to the Gentile mind. 
And so some scholars uh, theorize, and again, this is, this is just theory, but I think there's some validity to it, that Paul and, uh, and, and Luke had come across this Theophilus guy, and eventually Paul said, you know, we need, we need a gospel that's written for the Gentiles. It would really help us a lot, Luke, as my companion, if you would write something for Theophilus, and he can distribute the book as he pleases. So we can be sure that Paul recognized the desperate need for a version of Matthew's gospel that met the spiritual and intellectual needs of the Gentiles. And with that in mind, I think it's reasonable to conclude that the book of Luke was actually written second. Uh, I think it was probably at Paul's urging that Luke wrote his gospel narrative in which Luke combined a lot of Matthew's narrative, a lot of what we find in the book of Matthew, with the testimony of the eyewitnesses, uh, while leaving out references to to prophecy for the most part, uh, which wouldn't have meant a whole lot to the Gentiles. Dr. Alan Black wrote a book called Why Four Gospels, and he says this, Through hindsight, we can determine the assignment that Luke received from Paul by comparing the gospels of Luke and Matthew and by noting Luke's deviations. In other words, where Luke is, is different from Matthew, we can be sure that this was all geared toward a Gentile mind. The problem that Paul would have run into, however, was that, Paul, uh, was that Luke's gospel narrative uh, hadn't been approved by an eyewitness, by, by one of the apostles who had been a disciple of, of Jesus. See, neither Paul nor Luke had been uh, really familiar with Jesus while Jesus was on earth. And so who was to say that Luke's gospel was accurate. Well, Paul knew that it needed to be endorsed by an apostolic eyewitness, and so he needed to establish and verify the credibility of Luke's gospel. And so what does he do? He sends it to Peter. He gives the the gospel of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, to Peter so that Peter has a chance to look over it. Now, of course, Peter and Mark were, were ministry partners. So here's Peter reading out loud the, the, the book of Matthew, comparing it with the book of Luke, and he's saying every, every now and then, oh yeah, I, I remember that, and, and this also. And so he adds on these details, details that we don't find in Matthew or Luke, and, and it's really obvious. Uh, for example, one, one of the things that we find is that he tells us exactly where Jesus was sleeping on the boat when the boat was in the midst of this storm. Now, in, in, uh, what we know is that the other Gospels um, left out a lot of the stuff that Mark included. Uh, that's, probably, um, that's probably why Mark's gospel is shorter. He's trying to go from one point to the other very quickly. Uh, he's trying to summarize a lot of the, the more lengthy things. Um, so when was this written? It was probably written when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and Peter was ministering in Rome with Mark uh, between the years of 55 and 62 AD, roughly. Again, that's all a theory. So with that all established, now we've looked at the back of the book. We know what it's about. We know who it was written to, all that stuff. We've got all the background. So let's take a quick look at the introduction. Now, for the Western person, the Western mind, uh, they know that you don't have a lot of time to get somebody's attention, to get your audience's attention. In fact, uh, you actually have less than a minute to make an impression on your audience before they start to go to sleep. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing worse than starting off a book. Uh, you ever done this? You start reading a book, and by the time you get to page three, you're like, oh, man, I, I need a nap. You ever, get, you ever do that? Uh, I mean, as a speaker, I realize how important it is to get your attention early. And so usually what I'll do, you guys have probably noticed this, usually what I'll do is I'll start off with, uh, with something funny. You know, I'll, I'll start off with a news story or a personal story, something to get your attention so that, you know, before we get to the, the, the fifth minute of the sermon, you guys aren't ready to hit the snooze button and roll over and go back to sleep. Well, Mark knew that the same principle actually held true for the Roman mind uh, 2,000 years ago. And so with that in mind, Mark doesn't start off his book with this long, kind of tedious genealogy like Matthew does or like Luke does. Of course, Matthew gives, uh, gives Joseph's genealogy. Luke gives Mary's genealogy. Mark doesn't give a genealogy. He goes straight to the point. He's going to say something that... that's geared towards setting the tone for the rest of the book. Something simple, but yet at the same time, something profound. Something that's going to make the reader feel a sense of shock before they even get past the first or second sentence. And so he writes in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So before his reader even has enough time 
to blink or take a few breaths, Mark introduces them to the word gospel. This is the gospel, which of course means good news. That's what the word gospel literally means. Now, Matthew and Luke actually waited until chapter 4 to introduce their audience to this word. But Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, gospel, good news. And this first verse actually also serves as kind of a title for the book uh, and as a summary of its contents. So while, you know, if, if you look in your Bible, it probably says something like the gospel according to Mark uh, or the gospel of Mark or something like that. Mark's title for this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The report of God putting on flesh, becoming like one of us, dying for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, without which it's impossible to have a relationship with God. That is good news, is it not? That's good news. So why does Mark cut straight to the chase? I mean, if, if Jesus is the king of kings, don't we want a little bit of background information on him first? Don't we want to know, you know, where did this guy come from? I mean, is, if, if he's royalty, uh, you know, weren't his parents royalty? Or, you know, where does this guy come from? No, Mark doesn't include any of that. He completely skips over the dialogue between God and Mary, where God tells Mary, you're going to have a child, you're going to, you know, you do this and that. You know, he skips over the dialogue that God has with Joseph. He skips over all of that stuff. Why? Well, there are probably... A lot of reasons why he cuts to the chase. But one of those reasons has got to be the fact that he's about to present Jesus as a servant. And a servant doesn't need a a lengthy introduction or a lengthy pedigree. He's going to present Jesus as somebody who came to serve. And Mark lets us know that he's starting his narrative at the beginning of the story of Jesus. This isn't the beginning of Jesus' life that he starts with, and it's not the beginning of John the Baptist's life either, as we're going to see here in just a minute. But this is where he's going to start is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's where he's going to start. Uh, So here we see, he, he blows his reader away with the incredible claim in the first verse that Jesus is the incarnate God. Jesus is God. This, this guy that I'm about to tell you about is the Son of God. And if that doesn't get your attention as the audience, nothing is going to get your attention. But Mark wants his audience to understand that God becoming a man, God becoming one of us, was something that was planned from all of eternity. So he continues, writing in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, the first thing that we should probably understand here is that Mark actually isn't quoting just Isaiah. Uh, he's quoting Malachi as well. Malachi was a wise guy. I'm just kidding. It's Malachi. <laughs> just making sure you guys are awake. The common custom was to ascribe a combination of sayings uh, from the prophets to the the greater of the two, the one who was more well-known, maybe the one who had the bigger book of the two. And Malachi was a minor prophet. Malachi was a minor prophet. Isaiah was a major prophet. Uh, The first half of the prophecy comes from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, where he writes, where Malachi writes, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. This is cool, if you really think about it. Who is Malachi quoting here? He's quoting Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, that text right there isn't in red, isn't in red ink, but it should be, because he's saying, he will prepare the way for me. So here's Jesus speaking through Malachi, uh, and he's referring to his messenger. Who's his messenger? Of course, we know that's John the Baptist, as we're going to see here in just a moment. Um, the second and the, the larger part of the quote comes from Isaiah. And, and what, what he's doing here, what Mark's doing here, is he's taking these two quotations and he's paraphrasing them together. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we read, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Now, the neat thing that we should see here from Mark's quote is that this was a conversation that was going on between the members of the Trinity from all eternity. Look at what Mark was saying again. It's the Father speaking to the Son about sending a messenger ahead of the Son. 
So this is a conversation that's going on between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, whenever a king was going to come into a town, the cultural norm would have been that he would be preceded by a herald, somebody who would go before him and say, get ready, everybody, you know, clean up the streets, you know, brush the cow manure off the streets and, and prepare the way for the king because he's too worthy to walk, uh, you know, in your streets until they're clean. So it was a cultural norm that there would be a herald who would announce the king's coming ahead of time. And the herald would prepare the way for the king and make sure that everyone was aware of and prepared for his arrival. Now, Mark's first century Gentile audience uh, would have picked up immediately on what Mark is pointing out here. Uh, This is kind of Mark's way of saying the guy that that we're about to tell you about is, is special. The guy that we're about to tell you about is of paramount importance. So get your heart ready. Get your mind ready. This guy is of paramount importance. So this is the beginning, the arrival of the good news that Mark is so eager to tell his Gentile audience about. And it's no surprise that we find a, a paraphrase of actually the same quote in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, and Luke chapter 3, verse 4. Um, again, the herald or the messenger being referred to is John the Baptist, who was born a few months before Jesus, but his ministry started way before Jesus' ministry started. The message of this herald was to tell the people that they needed to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds to brush away the spiritual cobwebs, to brush away, get rid of the spiritual clutter, the things that are, that are getting in the way of the one who's coming. Straighten out their morally crooked paths so that the king of kings can make his way through clearly. Now, people who, who don't know Jesus just aren't prepared for him. There's more spiritual clutter than they realize because they don't understand the depths of their offense, of their sin toward God. They don't understand concepts like holiness or righteousness as far as God's concerned. And so John was sent as a messenger to tell the people that their sin was like this horrible, intolerable odor to the one who's coming, to God, to the Son of God. I mean, can you imagine, let's say that you really hate bananas, and you've been, you've been away from home for a long time, and you know, the rest of your family really likes bananas, and they've left banana peels all over the place. And you're coming home, and you're going to be mad. You're, you're just going to be so offended if there are banana peels everywhere, because you hate bananas. And so somebody comes and says, let's clean this place up, so that when they come back, when you come back, there aren't bananas everywhere to offend him. That's what John is doing. Let's continue. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So as was foretold so many hundreds of years prior to John showing up, he shows up in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark wants us to see what it meant for John to do that. What did it mean for this messenger to go ahead of him and prepare the way for the Lord? What did that exactly mean? Now keep in mind that there hadn't been a prophet in Israel. God had been silent with Israel for 400 years. 400 years. And a lot of people were starting to wonder, why is God being so quiet? Has God just completely left us But here's John the Baptist, a man whom people recognize as being sent by God. And so there's this sense of excitement when he shows up among the people. And of course, many of the prophets, including Isaiah, also proclaimed the importance of repentance. But John spoke of it with an even greater urgency because he knew that he was the herald. He was the forerunner. He was the one sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, Luke tells us quite a bit about John the Baptist, even starts, starts off with the narrative about his conception, talking about his parents. Uh, Mark doesn't touch on any of that. Um, it, it's just not important to that mind. Now, it had always been customary for, uh, for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism to be baptized as an act which symbolized uh, kind of 
turning around, turning their life around. They, they were far away from God. Now they're, they're drawing close to God through the religion of Judaism. And so they would, get, uh, they would get baptized. But John was doing something more. John was demanding that Jews be baptized as a means of preparing their hearts and preparing their minds for the arrival of the Messiah. And the significance of the baptism that John was telling them that they needed was that it represented true, heartfelt repentance. It wasn't the baptism, however, which was preparing their hearts and minds. It was the repentance. Nobody gets saved uh, by just getting baptized. Nobody draws closer to God by immersing themselves in water. But by turning from our own ways to God's way, that's how people get closer to God. And that's what John is telling them to do. Because repentance has two aspects to it. First, you turn away from your own ways. Second, you turn toward God. You turn toward God in his ways. John the Baptist was essentially telling the people that they could not continue living in sin. They couldn't continue just doing, however, you know, doing whatever they want, living however they please, and at the same time claim that they were being obedient to God. They needed to identify and get rid of the sin in their lives. And when a person had done this, then and only then, John would baptize them. John wasn't baptizing everybody who came out there. Matthew actually tells us about the fact that a lot of the the Jewish religious leaders were going out to see John the Baptist and wanted to be baptized. Why? Because it would please the people. It, it, It would make them, you know, appear, uh, you know, holy to the people. And John was saying, no, I won't baptize you because you're still in your sin. They didn't see their need for repentance. They didn't see their need for forgiveness. And so John wasn't baptizing just anyone and everyone who went out to see him. We also need to understand that baptism itself wasn't saving or preparing the hearts of anyone. It was the act of turning from their sins and seeing, realizing their need for forgiveness. That's what was preparing the way for the Lord. And Mark lets us know that John the Baptist experienced great success in his ministry. Uh, he, he's out in the wilderness, and people, all the people, Mark tells us, all the people are going out to see him. Remember, it's been 400 years since God has spoken. And so Mark tells us that all of Judea was going out to see him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they'd go out there, and... They, they would have identified their sins, and so they would confess their sins, Mark tells us. And then John would baptize them. But we need to understand that John's message wasn't just repent. Uh, that was definitely part of it, but there was a reason that they needed to repent. There was a reason that John told them that they needed to repent. Let's look at that. Mark chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And, as, and he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now you have to understand the, the mindset of Mark's audience here. A person who was the herald to an earthly king would have been very well-dressed, very well-groomed, very well-fed, I mean, can you imagine the President of the United States being greeted by some guy who looks like he's a hippie, you know, hasn't taken a shower or a bath since 1973, and here he is introducing the President. Can you, can you imagine that? I mean, who, who, who introduces the President uh, at the, the State of the Union address? Anybody know? The Speaker of the House. Can you imagine if instead of the Speaker of the House, who of course is dressed in the finest clothes you can possibly imagine, can you imagine if some homeless looking guy got up there to introduce the President? That's exactly the impression that Mark wants his audience to have of John the Baptist. This this lowly guy, this guy who's really different than any herald you've ever heard of, this is the guy who is proclaiming the coming of the Lord. He wants his audience to know that this is no ordinary guy who's, uh, who's serving as a herald because this is no ordinary king who's coming. Now contrast the clothes of, of John the Baptist with the clothes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been wearing these beautiful, long, flowing robes, but they were greedy, selfish uh, politically-minded, self-promoting 
people. And you see that John the Baptist, by dressing as he did, was essentially telling the people, I'm not like those guys. I'm speaking on behalf of God. You don't need that long flowing robe to speak on behalf of God. I am the opposite of these people wearing the long robes. And the point is kind of reemphasized here in verse 7, where John says that he's not even fit to touch the sandal of the one who is coming. I mean, it, can you imagine one of the Pharisees saying that? There, there's somebody who's coming. I mean, think, think about what we know about the Pharisees from the Gospels. The, can you imagine one of the Pharisees saying, prepare your hearts and minds, get yourself right with God. I'm not worthy to touch the sandal of the one who's coming. Of course, that's not what they would say based on what we know about them from the Gospels. So John continues here in verse 8. Mark records him saying, John the Baptist, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John's baptism represented repentance, humility, and a person's willingness to turn from their sin from being the center of their own universe and saying, God, I can't do it, but I know you can. So I believe in you and I'm going to trust in you. And this was to prepare the people. This repentance was to prepare the people for something even greater. I mean, anybody can get into a body of water. Anybody can get into the Jordan River or a bathtub or a lake or, you know, whatever, a dunking tank, whatever you have. Anybody can get into something like that. But, a per, but for a person to be entered by the Holy Spirit, change, serious change of heart, the kind of change that only God can do, was needed. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. And it was meaningless. It's as meaningless as anything can be if it's nothing more than simply agreeing to be immersed in water. And John's saying this because he knows that the people are aware of the fact that God had promised through the Old Testament prophets the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We read, for example, uh, one of of several uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in within you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist is talking about. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now let's look at what Mark's doing here. The first person that he introduces us to, personally, he's announced the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the first person that we're becoming acquainted with is someone who had surrendered absolutely everything that he possibly could have had for the sake of being obedient to God. This wasn't a guy who just preached repentance. This wasn't a guy who just preached godliness. John the Baptist was a guy who lived it. Who lived it. If you never heard him say, turn from God, if you never heard him say, you need to live a godly life, you would catch that message by looking at what he had done in his life, what he had given up for the sake of God. He wasn't just trying to make a bunch of money. He wasn't trying to make a lot of friends. He offended a lot of people, but he was being obedient to God. And the satisfaction of doing that was enough to make him happy. See, God can can use a person who is completely, unequivocally sold out for him, sold out for his cause, sold out for his mission. He can use that person to reach others who maybe haven't even considered their need for reconciliation with God. Maybe they haven't even realized that they've offended God, but they see their life and they compare it with the life of this other person who's sold out for the gospel. And they say, man... There's something in me that needs to change if I want to be like him. And John didn't want any credit. He remained humble despite his popularity with the people. His message was always pointing to what he had been sent to do. Prepare the way. John brought people to Jesus the only way that it's possible to get to Jesus. And that's through an acknowledgement of guilt, offense, and wrongdoing toward God, and the need to turn away from our own ways. Mark wants you. 
us as his audience to know, to see that this is where spiritual life begins. This is where a healthy, vibrant spiritual life begins. This is where God will meet you. He's being intentional about how he starts this book off, talking about repentance for the sake of getting your heart and mind ready for the one who is about to be introduced. And so the place where you say, God, I I acknowledge, I I admit, I've I've been living like I'm the center of my own universe, but I'm ready to give up on that idea. I'm ready to give it all to you. I'm ready to live for you. That's, that's where Mark wants us to be. He wants us to be at that point. Now, if you've never repented, if you're still living like you're the center of your universe, if you're still living like you're the one who gets to set the rules, instead of living for the sake of pleasing God, we're going to give you just a moment here, in a moment, in the quiet of your own heart and mind, in the place where only God can hear, to do that, to turn from your own ways and to turn toward God. But maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you, you've already repented of, of your own ways and you've already surrendered your life to God and you know that there are areas of your life that you haven't completely surrendered. You know what? We all do it. We all hold on to our, our freedom, our free will. There are areas of our lives that we struggle to hand over to God. And so in a moment here, I want you to pray that God would free you from that, that God would free you from your need to hold on to that aspect of your life. And maybe it's something that you've struggled with for a long, long time, and you know. You've prayed about this already. You know that it's something that you can't do on your own. Here's what I want you to do. Come to me. Come to Craig, Skip, Kurt. Come to one of the guys on the board. We'll be an accountability partner to you. We'll pray for you. We'll help you. Because there are certain sins that we just can't pray our way out of. We can say, God, please free me from from my addiction to alcohol. But the fact is, you've got this physiological uh, dependence on alcohol. There are all kinds of addictions that we get tied to. And you need help. Studies have shown you can't do it on your own. So if you need help, I want you to feel free to do that today. You will not receive condemnation because we've all been there. Let's take a moment in silence and just turn from the things that we hold on to in our own lives, areas in our heart that are still dark and we've tried to keep them from God. Can we do that? Just close our eyes and, and concentrate on that for a moment. Lord Jesus, I pray that right now you would convict us, that you would search our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would convict us of areas in our lives, parts of our hearts that we've held on to. Whether that's pride or self-sufficiency or good works, whatever, Lord whatever it might be, if there's an area in our lives that we have not surrendered to you, I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate that in our minds. For those who need help, Lord, from turning from their sin, I ask that you would grant them the courage to ask for help. We pray, Lord, that you would take those areas of our lives that we've held on to, that you would help us release our grip on them, that we would cling to you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls, and all of our strengths, that we would cling to you with as much strength as we've been clinging to those parts of our lives. God, you came to redeem not just parts of our lives, but you came to redeem all of us, all of our lives. We understand that we belong completely and entirely to you. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to baptize us in you, that we might be united with you because we know that there's no other way. God, I pray that you would teach us to live godly lives. Strengthen us, 
Give us a deeper love for you. Help us to understand the penalty of living for ourselves. The pain that it causes you. In Jesus name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, And you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Flowers in the springtime Open in bloom is that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon. Stars in the night sky, rain on the grass. Such beautiful moments, they'll pass more high, great, deep, more beautiful, high, great, deep, more beautiful, high, great, deep, more beautiful. More beautiful